The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't have one, feel free to take it as a gift from us at Park Church. Okay. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I've been looking forward to this passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 for a little while, um, and, and it's not because it's just like um, this passage that's like full of these like crazy like uh, stories and all this kind of wild stuff. It's actually a passage that's aimed at changing the way you think. It's a passage. It's, it's a passage that's aimed at changing the way uh, we think. And so, as I've been approaching this passage, and I felt this like growing in my mind last night. As a as a communicator, you're always thinking like, okay, my like first step 
in, in preparing to preach is try, try to understand the passage. Just get my mind around what's being said, what the original author said to the original audience, start praying about how the Holy Spirit might want to bring that to bear in our community. And then the kind of later stages of preaching, it's always like, okay, how do you say this in a way that's like thoughtful or compelling or helpful and clear and start kind of crafting that how are we going to say it? How do we present it in a way that will actually be compelling and helpful uh, for this particular church? And it's in that, that stage of this process that I kept feeling like things aren't coming together and things aren't clear, which is fascinating to me because the, the, mass, the, the message of this passage is very much around the idea that the power of God's word is in the substance of the message, not in the form. And, and I felt this kind of like growing conviction from God's spirit this week. Hey, make it clear. Just help people understand what's happening. Help people understand what the word of God says. So that's my goal is just to help you understand what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says not trying to make it really fun or exciting, and that might sound boring, and, you know, I'm just, my job today, my main goal today is I want you to understand what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would take this message and through his power would transform your life, would transform your life. My goal is to make it clear. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would take the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and change the way you view all of life, all of reality, that your mindset would be transformed to be looking at life through the lens of Christ crucified and to see how that changes every single aspect of our life. And so I want to take a minute and pray that the Holy Spirit would do that. Uh, We desperately need his help this morning. And so would you join me as we ask God to work uh, powerfully among us today? Uh, Jesus, we need you. Uh, You've been impressing that on my heart so clearly this week, that apart from you, we are just gathering as a people, exchanging information and ideas and and talking, but we will never leave changed. We'll never experience salvation. We we will never experience, experience healing. We won't experience transformation because apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from the power of your Holy Spirit working among us in miraculous ways to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to transform us, to heal us, to change us, to save us. Apart from your work, uh, these are empty moments, and so we're praying, Holy Spirit, that you would work in powerful ways. Lord, we need you every hour, including this one. And so would you work powerfully among us this morning in the midst of our own weakness, our frailty, our limitations as human beings, Would your power, your grace, your sufficiency, your strength shine and help us to leave changed because of your work among us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We are as human beings attracted to greatness. We're attracted to greatness. Um, Just this past Sunday, 123 million people tuned in to watch the greatness of Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Kevin Lee. Watch greatness, right? The first half wasn't greatness. Wasn't greatness. Last quarter in overtime, greatness. You got to watch it, and it's attractive. It pulled 123 million people, and the most people that have ever watched a single televised event ever. 123 million. I, I don't know what kind of, kind of greatness attracts you. I, I didn't get the numbers on this, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine how many arenas full of 50, 60, 70, 80,000 fans the Taylor Swift era's tour attracted. I mean, arena after arena after arena, night after night after night, arenas full. People are attracted to greatness. 
People are attracted to greatness. People go to museums. Went to the Met last year. I've gone to the Met a couple times where you just kind of like walk through, and it's just full of just people that are looking at these paintings and sculptures and all this beauty all around you. They're attracted to these great works of art. It might be concert venues. You go to Red Rocks. You go to your favorite concert venue, and you want to go there because there's something that's beautiful, that's compelling, that's powerful, that's like just excellent. That's excellent. That draws you in. You could hop on YouTube and look at how many millions of views are around different songs or different things that happen. People are drawn in to witness greatness. There's something in the human person that wants to experience a greatness that transcends us because there's something about seeing that that kind of vicariously makes us feel what's possible. Like, what can the human do? Like, look what humans can do. And we're attracted to this kind of, this image of human greatness. This has always been the case throughout history. It was the case in first century Corinth as well. The Corinthians loved greatness. They had these games that they hosted called the Isthmian Games, where it would be athletic competitions, drama, musical competitions, and people would come from all over the world to compete and to perform, and it would attract crowds and crowds of people to come and witness greatness, to come and witness greatness. On top of the Isthmian Games, where... Corinth is situated right next to Athens in the midst of this society that loved sort of philosophical musing. They also attracted a lot of incredible speakers. And in fact, kind of coming to watch somebody speak and perform some sort of oration was a really popular thing in Corinth. So people are, what are you doing on Friday night? Well, I'm going down to the city center, and there's, there's these new people that are going to come, and they're going to be sharing their thoughts, and they're going to be kind of expressing and giving speeches and these orations. And so they'd come and watch. And people would come to Corinth to share these ideas, and their goal was to be profound, their goal was to be clever, but they had mastered a whole technique of speaking that it became more of a performance that was about the performance of the speaker than it was about the content of the message. And so the assessment that everybody that was watching wanted to see was less of like, is this new idea going to be coherent? Is it going to be compelling? And am I going to like it? It's more, what's the quality of the speaker? Like, were they impressive? Was their structure good? Was their rhetorical devices uh, well-crafted? Did they kind of take us on a journey to bring us emotionally into this space and bring us here and then turn the corner at the end and inspire us and awe us and wow us? People would leave enamored, not by the content of the message, but by the craft of the preacher by the performance itself. And this is something that had laid a whole kind of cultural foundation in Corinth. What people were beginning to do in Corinth is really attached to their favorite kind of cultural icons. And we do the same thing. I am of Pat Mahomes. I am of Josh Allen. I am a Swifty. I follow, you know, like who is the person that you love and follow? We have whole kind of media platforms through which you can attach yourself and follow different people. And just like, I, these are the people that inspire me. These are the great ones that are above, elevated, exalted, and they are inspiring to me. And I start orienting my life to watch them and to watch their life and look at their style and look at how they live. And and it's compelling and it draws us in. And that was the case in Corinth. People were starting to see different philosophical thinkers, different athletes, and would attach themselves to these different kind of tribes of people as a way to elevate their own sense of status, their own sense of standing, to create a sort of tribe around a personality. This was really common, and it was kind of the foundation as Paul the Apostle in the late 40s AD, the early 50s AD, came into Corinth to bring the gospel. He came into an environment where people were very used to sitting in a crowd and listening to somebody speak. They're used to that. 
And something about Paul walking into this environment and looking at this place where people are like giving round of applause for what a, what, what a great performance that guy had. What a great performance that group had. What a great performance that lady had. Like, these are great ones. He sees this situation, and there's something about that that, that did two things to him. On the one hand, he had this sense of like, I don't know if I want to try and compete on those terms. His goal was not to come into Corinth and be the next great speaker. His goal was to come into Corinth to tell them life-changing news. Life-changing news. And it's like his, his sense as he saw the col- sort of cultural climate was that to kind of share that news according to the forms of Corinth and that kind of style to hop on the stage and be the next guy up to share the next new profound idea and try to like do it in a way that everybody was like, Paul was great. Who's the next one to share? He's like, I can't, I can't play that game. I don't want to play that game. My fear, Paul's fear, is that playing that game would actually undermine not, not just the effectiveness of the message, but the content of the message. That something about a human being elevating themselves with their strength was somehow undermining the meaning and the message and the power of the cross, which is by its very nature designed for people that are saying, I can't do this on my own. I'm weak and need a savior. And so Paul was committed as he came into Corinth in the late 40s, early 50s AD to let the way he shared the message of the gospel match the content of the gospel itself. And what he's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is reminding him of that reality, of how he came to them, that he's not trying to play the cultural game that everybody else around was trying to play. And then he's going to talk about how that should reshape the way they think about not just the gospel, but the whole of their lives as people living in God's world where the wisdom of God is upside down from the wisdom of the world. And so what I want to do this morning is walk through this text. And my prayer has been as we walk through it that just the Holy Spirit would just light up for us areas where we, we are living according to value systems and paradigms that are upside down from what God has designed us for. Where we, where we are living according to the ways of this world that talk about clawing and scrambling and scratching our way up some social ladder, striving and straining and stressing ourselves to kind of improve our life and build our life, improve our worth, improve our value, improve our greatness, that we'd realize that game, that game will crush you. It'll crush you. And what God has called us into is to humble ourselves and say, I need a savior. I need a power outside of myself. I am weak. I am sinful. And wonder upon wonders, I'm loved. Wow. That's freedom. And I think that's what Paul's longing for for the Corinthians is that they'd find freedom as they understand the power of God and the wisdom of God demonstrated through Christ crucified. And so let's look together. I want to share with you the main point. Um, and then we'll kind of unpack it in two points today. I'm going to lower the average. Um, two points instead of... 2.9 or 3.1 or 3 on the money. We're going to go for two points today, and I'll make them extra long uh, just to compensate for the two points. You're laughing now. Um, all right, main point of the sermon is, is simply this. God's wisdom and power to heal the world. And when I say heal the world, I'm talking about transform, save, deliver, redeem, restore. Like this huge biblical concept. The world is broken. God is fixing it. And his wisdom and power to do that, to heal the world, are unleashed through his spirit when we embrace our weakness and our folly. When we embrace, I 
cannot do this. I can't fix my life. I can't save my life. I can't change my life. I am inadequate, insufficient, and I need someone outside of me to save me. It's our weakness. And our folly, which is I had ideas of what I thought life was about. I tried to live according to those ideas. Turned out it was kind of foolish, and it led towards a lot of pain and destruction. I ran the wrong way. And when we admit that I can't save myself and I don't have the wisdom to fix the world or to fix my own life, I need God's power and God's wisdom. When we come to terms with that, the Holy Spirit unleashes power. Power. Power to save, power to deliver, power to transform, power to heal the world. And so that's what we're going to see. The first point is in the first five verses. I'll state it, and then we'll kind of walk through the passage. It's this. The power of God to heal the world doesn't rely on human persuasion or performance, but on the power of the cross. The power of God through which he is healing the world doesn't need me or you or any human ability to persuade or any performance that's compelling or clever or, or you know, attractive. It, it's, it's reliant on what Christ has already done in history people hearing that news. Look at what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, Paul is entering into this, this dynamic where he's reminding them as they're saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. They're dividing the way Corinthians divide. Like, I'm attaching myself to Apollos because Apollos was, that guy could speak. I mean, that guy was like, we've got our kind of like Corinthian orators, and we got people coming from all over. Apollos was like one of those. He was really good. And Paul commended Apollos. Apollos preached the gospel with like winsome, persuasive, compelling speech. And Paul is not against that. He's not against talking about the gospel in compelling ways. He's not against it. But people heard Apollos and they're like, I love that guy. Other people are like, I'm of Paul. Paul planted our church. Paul's the one that told us what was going on. Do you know how many churches Paul has planted? He's a big deal. He's like the guy writing letters that everybody's passing around. I'm with Paul. And people are like, well, no, I'm with Peter. Didn't you hear about the, what the gospel writer said about Peter? Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock, and on you I will build my church. I'm with Peter. I'm with that guy. And for various reasons, these different people would attach themselves in a very Corinthian-like way to their favorite style to their favorite kind of like method of delivery. And Paul, from the get-go, is like, that's crazy. All, we're all just trying to tell you about Jesus. To attach yourself to any one of us based on the style with which we tell you the good news is to miss the point of the good news. Paul's not going to save you. Apollos isn't going to save you. Peter's not going to save you. Jesus is the one who saves, and we've come to share that news. And so what Paul starts doing is he says, listen, we're not, we're not in chapter 1, he's like, we're not trying to play this game where we're, we're trying to like compel the Jewish people with all these powers and signs. Jewish people wanted a Messiah that would come on a war horse and drive out the Romans. That would, that would be a sign of that Messiah being blessed and anointed by God, the Christ. And Jesus was crucified on a cross, which was a sign to them of him being cursed, rejected by God. He's like, hey, the message of Jesus crucified doesn't appeal to Jewish people according to their kind of their prevailing sensibilities. And the Romans, the Romans want people that are going to contribute to the empire, this growing empire. And if anybody exalts themselves above Rome and thinks that they have some power to do something different or in opposition to Rome, Rome's just going to squash them. And, and Rome's going to have got a really impressive way of squashing people that exalt themselves above their station. It's really satirical. They say, hey, you think you're high and lifted up? We'll make you high and lifted up. 
Like you think you're strong and you're some king that's going to be changing the world? No. Watch how much more powerful Rome is than some would-be rebel that's going to create some new kind of kingdom. And so they take people who are kind of purporting to start some new kind of kingdom, and they'd be like, you think you're high and lifted up? We'll make you high and lifted up. They'd whip off their clothes. They'd beat them. They'd scourge them with whips that are full of shards. They'd put this crown on their head. They'd put a robe on them, and they'd mock them and spit on them, and hail king, hail king. And they'd lift them up and say, look at your king, high and lifted up. This is how much more powerful we are than your king. So to proclaim that a new kingdom is being formed through a guy that was crucified, foolishness to the Romans, weakness to the Jews, and Paul's like, and yet this is the message through which God is changing the world. It's inherently upside down from the way your culture thinks about salvation, life, the goal of humanity, the vision for the world. It's upside down. And God chose that. He chose a message and a a way of saving the world that would be upside down from the way our world tends to think about reality. And then Paul says, you guys were weak too. Like you guys weren't, you were struggling. You weren't like the social elites. And God's brought you into his kingdom, into his people. And then he starts in chapter two and he says, and I'm weak too, remember? Remember? This is three years later. He says, remember how I came into your town? Says this, chapter two, verse one. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, the good news about God's kingdom through Christ with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't play your cultural game. You guys have some great speakers. I agree. Fantastic. Those orders are amazing. I didn't try to enter in to your culture on those terms. I didn't try to like be the next guy sharing the next big idea that you'd be like, Paul, I'm going to follow Paul because he was so impressive. He was so much better than the other orders. He's I didn't even try that. He says this, for I decided... It's like he determined as he came into this culture and saw this this performance game, this persuasion game. He felt both a sense of like intimidation, potentially he talks about fear and trembling. Like, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could like persuade people on those terms. Like those are elite speakers. But also this sense of like, wait, the way that God is saving the world wasn't through somebody that looked miraculous and spectacular. It was through a crucified Christ. Maybe if I smell like Jesus, maybe if I embrace my weakness, maybe if I humble myself, then the method of my preaching would match the message of my preaching. So he says that. Look at the next verse. For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In my speech and my message, they weren't implausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's like he came in and he saw this, like these speakers and this thing and everybody's like, oh, who's up next? Who's up next? It's like he didn't get up on stage. He just started like, hey, I want to share with you the most transformational news you'd ever hear. And they're like, why don't you get up on stage and perform like those guys? He's like, nah, I just want to tell you good news. Good news that'll change your life if you'll believe it. There's a guy named Jesus He's born in a place called Bethlehem, raised in a town called Nazareth. He he was living his life and was loving and serving people. And we came to realize that he was the Messiah that the people of Israel have been waiting for, but also the king that the world's been waiting for. 
And we thought he was incredible the way he loved and served. And then he went and he laid down his life on the cross. Instead of exalting himself to be the king, he humbled himself and sacrificed his life. And he shed his blood to bring forgiveness to us for the ways that we had rejected our creator and our maker. We had turned away from God and Jesus came as the son of God to bring forgiveness and to bring us back to the God who made us. And if you just trust in him and turn to him, admitting your sin and your folly and just trust in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God and brought into his kingdom through which he is transforming all things. And so that even when you don't feel like a social elite or even if you're persecuted or mocked or shamed, even if you die, you can have life forever in Christ because on the third day, Jesus rose again and everybody who trusts in Christ will be reconciled to God and given life eternal with him. That's good news. And I just want to share that with you. I just want you to know the good news. And and Paul will say in this passage and other places in his Corinthian epistles and other places in the other letters he wrote that it's like there's something even like physical about Paul's appearance. There's like infirmities he carried around in his body. There's weakness. We don't know what it is, but what we know is Paul, who is this brilliant writer, that his kind of upfront presence was was not spectacular. That he felt before people like... Man, if you're judging me compared to anybody else, like, I'm, I'm not going to get good scores. But if you listen to what I'm saying, it could change your life. It could change your life. And so he enters into this community to share with them the good news of Christ crucified. And look at the purpose clause in verse 5. He gives a reason why he did this, why he decided just to go in. I'm not going to play that cultural speaking game. I'm not going to try and, you know, be more shiny and more polished and more impressive than their speakers. I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to own my weakness. I'm going to own my frailty. I'm going to own my intimidation and my fears. I'm going to be honest about all that. And I'm just going to tell them about Christ crucified. Why? Verse 5. So that your faith, Corinthians, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, so, so that you don't look back and think like, I liked Paul's message because he was pretty good, but then that other guy came in and he was a little bit better, and so I'm going to follow that guy instead. It's like, no, then you're just like following impressive humans. But that impressive humans can't save the world. Christ crucified can save the world. He's the only way. And he was determined that as they looked back on their story, that they wouldn't think the reason why I became a Christian is because Paul was impressive. They'd think the reason why I became a Christian is because I heard good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day, and I believed and God changed me. God changed me. Who told you? Who cares who told me? Jesus died for me. He rose again, and he's changing the world. I'm all in. And Paul was committed to the way he delivered the message, kind of matching the power of the message itself. And I think this is so important for us for so many reasons. For so many reasons. Uh, As a culture, we have a tendency to try to dress up the gospel. I'll tell you as a guy who like lives in the sort of church world, that like the the pressure on uh, for like pastors to like brand themselves and market themselves is crazy. It's crazy. Like, I think social media can be really helpful and healthy for a lot of people. For me, personally, I've had to, like, hold on. Just, I don't want, I, I, it's hard, I don't want to play that game because I don't want to, like, try to present something shiny as if, like, my life's together. I'm a person in need of a, of a savior. And I'm not saying that's inherently wrong. I just, as I feel the kind of cultural pressure 
to like market and try to dress up and try to advertise and try to like make Jesus and the way of Christ seem like exciting on the world's terms and shiny and compelling. And do you see that really like awesome Christian? And you see that really like, I bet being a Christian is super cool. It's like, remember we're following a savior who was crucified on a cross. You can wear it as a chain. We can put it on our steeples. We can put it in our art. That's good. We celebrate the cross. But don't forget, it was a mode of execution that brought incredible shame. That's the Savior we're following. And Paul's like, I just want that to be like right in front of your face. So when you start playing the kind of climb the ladder game, as a Christian, you're like, oh, how do we take the next step to like next like tier of Christian elitism or I'm with this person or I learned this or I have this, my theology is better and my church is better and my way is better and the way I talk is more kind of culturally savvy or the way I talk is more like committed to the old theology and we just feel like we're better than all those other people. It's like, hey, remember, the one we're following is the one who emptied himself for everyone, who like made himself nothing, made himself nothing. And here we are trying to use him to make ourselves something. Paul's like, you're playing the wrong game. You missed the point of the whole thing. We don't need to dress up the gospel. We need to proclaim it and live our lives in the light of it. A great uh, preacher uh, named Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, from a previous generation said this about the gospel, and I think, it's, I, I think about it often, as I think about it as a communicator, just like, man, how do I say this in a way that's helpful? How do I say this in a way that's compelling? This, this message from Spurgeon just pierces me and motivates me every time says this, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it's a very proper and right thing to do, yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and it would be the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Just share the news. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul came and he let the gospel out and it started changing people. Not because he was impressive or because of his performance or his persuasive abilities, but because the gospel of Jesus is powerful. It can change lives. We don't need to dress up the gospel. We also don't need to soften the gospel. There's a lot of pressure to be like, man, the gospel that talks about forgiveness of sins is kind of culturally not hot. You know, like culturally sin like something I'm doing, something that my heart wanted to do is wrong, when the culture is saying, follow your heart. You know, like you do you, you be you. Like you are beautiful and good and valuable and follow your heart. Well, the, the Bible says following our heart away from the reign, the reign of God, it calls it sin. That's not culturally like palatable. That's culturally offensive. But it... It's fundamental to the gospel that as human beings we rejected the reign of our maker and we brought pain and sin and death into the world. And that the path for the world experiencing healing and transformation and the path to your life finding freedom and joy and eternal life is to acknowledge your sin and to turn to Jesus for forgiveness 
for cleansing, for love, for acceptance, not on the basis of your performance, but just because you've acknowledged, I've turned the wrong way, and you're turning to Jesus, the one who laid down his life on our behalf to bring forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation with God. This is the gospel, and it's not culturally palatable. And so when we start backing away from God's design, when we start backing away from realities of sin and the lordship of Christ, we're softening the gospel, and we're undermining its power. We need to own it. It's culturally crazy. But that's because culture's upside down. Culture's upside down. It doesn't mean people in our world don't have wisdom and valuable insights. There's a common grace, the human experience, where people do all sorts of beautiful and amazing things, but they won't save us, not without acknowledging our sin and turning to Jesus. It will not save the world. That's crazy talk in Denver. It sounds like foolishness, and that's exactly what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Yeah, this message is going to sound crazy unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. We don't need to soften the gospel. Also, and I think this is important for us, that we don't want our faith to rest on human leaders. But Paul's quick to talk about his own weakness, his own frailty, his own dependence, his own need for Jesus. Every time somebody's like, we love Paul, he's like, stop, 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 stop. Jesus. It's about Jesus. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. I'm one beggar telling a bunch of other beggars where to find bread. That's all I'm doing. But I'm also a beggar. And that's really important in a day and age where there are kind of church scandals and church, you know, churches falling apart with all sorts of like moral failures from pastors and leaders all the time. It is genuinely devastating, genuinely painful. And I don't want to minimize the pain of that. But we live in a world where humans are sinners and to put your hope in any particular human, you will be disappointed inevitably. It doesn't mean that every human being is having this gross moral failure. In fact, Paul, in a lot of his letters to young pastors, is like, pay close attention to your teaching and to your life, knowing that your own life can really undermine the message of what you're preaching. So he talks about that. But for us as people, to kind of be, I am of Park Church, or I am of this podcast, or I love that speaker, or I love those YouTube videos, or that's my, hey, you can appreciate and benefit and, and, and gain question is like, how are these different voices as servants of Christ bringing you to Jesus himself? Because the voices come, the voices go. People have their own strengths, their own weaknesses, their own issues. The question is, are you meeting with Christ? Are you coming to Jesus or are you being overly attached to a human leader? Last thought I have as I look at Paul's ministry in these first few verses is just how he embraced his weakness. He was so ready to be honest about his weakness. That is so difficult for us culturally. I've shared with you on numerous occasions my own fear of coming to terms with my own weakness. For so much of my life, I, I really wanted to be like somebody that was like, yes, I have a, I'm a sinner who needs Jesus, but I'm hardworking, competent, and I can figure it out. So I'm like a, a sinner, but I'm like competent. And, and coming to terms with my weakness was a very difficult psychological journey for me. It was very difficult. But I, as I'm learning, hear that kind of progressive tense, as I'm learning to come to terms with my own weakness, I'm finding steadily freedom. That there's no need to be impressive. Don't need to like, avoid looking at the, the dark stuff in my own heart, the insecurities I feel, the mixed motives I carry. They're real. They're at play. I'm going to talk about that till the day I die because it's real. Because I need a Savior. And I'm learning that the, the grace of Christ and the power of Christ is sufficient for me in my weakness. And Paul had, had come, he's the one who said that, by the way, in his second letter to the Corinthians. 
And he's so comfortable being honest that he's like, hey, remember when I was with you, I was like terrified. I was nervous. I, I was not impressive. I was like, I would have scored really low on some like, you know, 10 out of 10 scales. I would have been getting like low scores on oratory ability. But I told you about Jesus, the Jesus I need and the Jesus you need. And God poured out his power. The, the, the passage turns in a really powerful way where it starts unpacking that. For How, how does that affect all of life? Because Paul's thought is like, hey, it's not, it's not like God's like, well, the world's super smart and got it together, but I want salvation to be really hard, so I'm going to do it in a way that's like culturally offensive, just for giggles. It's, it's that the world is upside down, and the way of the cross is the way of wisdom, a way of humility, the way of sacrificial love, the way of service, the way of self-emptying, the way of generosity, the way of, of Jesus, the exact image of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, making himself nothing to serve is the glory of God. This is what we are made for as human beings, is to be the kind of people that empty ourselves and humble ourselves in reliance on God's validation, God's love, God's approval, and to empty ourselves for the sake of others. And if the world is full of people doing that, it's a beautiful world. But when the world's full of people exalting themselves against others, it's a contentious, divided, and painful world. And so what Paul says is, I was, I was giving you not just this news, but I was giving you wisdom. Look at what he says, starting in verse 6. He says, yet among the mature, for those that are beginning to think through the lens of the cross, for those that are beginning to say, I used to be of Corinth, and now I'm confessing Jesus is Lord, and I understand he was crucified, and it's changing the way I think about true greatness, true life, true joy. It's like Jesus is changing that. And so, so Paul says, to the mature, mature, those who are getting their mind and their heart around the way of Christ, the way of the cross, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age, right? This, this world has it upside down. This world says, climb, climb, climb. Defend yourself, protect yourself, promote yourself. You're awesome. You're sufficient. You're enough. And the more you get into realizing the way of Christ, it begins to change that. So the world doesn't understand the way of Christ. So among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. That stuff's going to fade away. The the wisdom and the devices and the thoughts and the ideas and the philosophies of this world, they're going to come and go. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, the wisdom that God has determined and decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers understand this. None of the rulers of this age understand this or understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. If the people of Israel would have understood that the Messiah came to empty himself and atone for their sin versus to, like, conquer other human beings on their behalf, if they would have understood this, they wouldn't have wanted him crucified. If the Romans would have understood that this Jesus coming wasn't coming to destroy Romans, he was coming to heal, to redeem, to restore humanity, they wouldn't have crucified him. If they, if they didn't see in Jesus, in this humble, self-giving, sacrificial man, somebody that felt insignificant and nothing, and if they had seen him as the image of the invisible God, the Lord of glory, they wouldn't have crushed him that way. But, but as it was, their mindset was upside down, and Jesus is in the business of flipping our mind through the power of his spirit around. And so he says this, but as it's written, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I love this, because he's saying, yes, what we're, what we're worshiping is a crucified king, a king who laid down his life on the cross. But he's also the risen king, that following the way of Jesus isn't just like suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering and then suffering and suffering and then suffering. It's like suffering and suffering and suffering, and then you die, and then glory. Glory. 
The way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians is that, is that this light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's why the resurrection is vital. If you understand the power and the goodness of the cross, and if you want to be willing to share with Christ in his self-sacrificing way of suffering, you have to believe that he's risen from the dead and that the way to glory is the way of the cross. And this is the wisdom of God, and it's upside down. It is upside down in our world's terms. That's what he says in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In other words, God's Spirit is the one who's helping you reframe the way you view the world. For who knows a person's thought except for the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God unless uh, except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Here's my second point as we close. It's simply this. The wisdom of God to restore the world doesn't come from the spirit of our age, but from the spirit of God. The wisdom of God to restore the world doesn't come from the spirit of our age, but from the spirit of God. Our world is obsessed with self-improvement. Our world is obsessed with self-actualization. Who are you truly, and how do you really maximize and become and get comfortable with who you truly are because you are enough? Our world is obsessed with these, these kinds of mentalities. Like, in fact, as I say this, if, if you're new to Christianity, you're like, wait, you don't believe that? Like, listen, you are full of dignity and value and worth because you're created by God. Every human being has inherent dignity and value and worth. And every human being is sick, corrupted in our heart, bent in our nature. Our thoughts are deceptive. Our hearts lead us astray. And God loves you doesn't have to lead to this kind of like self-like hatred. Honesty about the brokenness within us actually is the foundation for experiencing love for the true you. The true you that's both beautiful and broken. The true you that bears God's image and also carries around sin and corruption in your heart. That God would look at you and see the true you with your strengths and your weaknesses. Your, your goodness and the junk in your heart and he would still love you. That's transformative. Then you're honest. You're not trying to pretend and hide from all those dark realities within you. You can look at them because Jesus loves you. He laid down his life for you. This is upside down to the world. And what Paul says is the only way you can begin to see that is if the Spirit of God, who understands the wisdom of God, can come and actually be poured out on you and awaken you to God's wisdom and God's ways. And so that's what he says. He says, I came and I told you this message, and the Spirit of God was awakening you. And it's like you began to kind of like get God's kingdom and get this sort of upside down kingdom but it's like as I've been gone it feels like you're reverting back so let's, let's man remember the cross remember the resurrection remember Christ and start viewing the world accordingly this is profound and it's what Paul ends up saying in, in verse 14 as well that the natural person the person who doesn't have the spirit of God doesn't accept the things of God doesn't accept the things of God's spirit feels like foolishness He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, the only way you can understand the beauty and the glory of a crucified Christ who's risen, and the only way you'll, that'll feel like good news to you is if the Spirit of God's at work. So if something about Jesus is lighting you up, God's Spirit's at work, which is awesome. It's awesome. If you're like, well, it, it doesn't feel attractive to me. Well, the, the way to begin to experience the power of the Spirit is to start admitting that the way we ran was foolish. Our attempts to build our own life and the world's attempt to save the world and redeem the world and heal the world on our own terms 
It just led to perpetual pain and suffering. And then we die. And we hope the next generation will like figure it out. And then they don't. And then we hope the next generation will figure it out. And then they don't. And we hope, well, the next generation will figure it out. And then they don't. When will we come to terms with, hey, for, for all of human history, we haven't been able to figure it out. As soon as you can admit that, now you're opened up to receive the Spirit of God. Because you've admitted your inadequacy and your insufficiency and your dependence. And God loves to pour out a spirit on the humble. He loves to exalt the humble. So that's what he's called us to, is to begin to let the power of the cross and the resurrection reframe and reshape the way we view life and the world. The wisdom of this world tells you to take pride in the strength of who you are. But the wisdom of God says to celebrate your weakness as, as the canvas on which God can display his grace and his power. The wisdom of the world says you're enough. You can do it. The wisdom of God says you are beautiful by God's design, but you're also full of sin and need forgiveness and grace and healing. And that even in your sin, God loves you while you're still sinners. The wisdom of the world says, take care of yourself first and you can be great. The wisdom of God says, lay down your life and serve others and you are great. The wisdom of the world says, avoid death at all costs. The wisdom of God says, to die is gain because you get to depart and be with Christ. The wisdom of the world says, you need the next gadget, a bigger house, a better job, make more money. The wisdom of God says that true joy can be found in any and all circumstances through Christ who gives you strength. The wisdom of the world says, don't admit your mistakes because you'll be rejected. The wisdom of God says to confess your sins and you'll be forgiven and cleansed and loved. The wisdom of the world says, you're in charge of your life. You're in charge of your body. You're in charge of your identity. The wisdom of God says, Christ Jesus is Lord. And he's in charge. For I have been bought with a price and I want to glorify God with my life and my body. The wisdom of the world says that a crucified one looks like a failure. And the wisdom of God said the crucified one is the Lord. He's king. He is the image of the invisible God hanging on a tree, a man of suffering, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a one who emptied himself and laid down his life again and again and again, a one who saw true greatness as service, who saw love as forgiveness, and who even loved his enemies. This is God's wisdom. And as Christians, it is the foundation through which we find our relationship with God, but it's also the road we walk on. So that we would grow as people who are living into the mind of Christ, that the way of Jesus wouldn't just become for us like the means by which we become a Christian. It would become the way of life that we're trying to follow and model our whole lives after. May God's spirit do that among us as we learn to follow Jesus. Let's pray. And Jesus, even now, we, we need you. I feel aware in this room, there, there are people for whom the good news of your cross and resurrection is, man, it's, it lights up our heart. Lights up our heart. God, I pray that you would open our hearts more and more and more to receive you, to trust you, and to orient all of our life around the glory of the cross and the resurrection, that it would shape who we are and how we live. I'm also aware that there are a lot of Christians in this room, and I feel in this place so often, so often, that although we've believed that, our, our hearts, are like the Corinthians, are, are beginning to be kind of 
conformed back to the image and the wisdom of our culture, where we're still trying to play the culture's game, trying to climb the ladder, trying to chase joy, chase pleasure, chase kind of achievements and accumulation, chase status, chase acceptance on our own terms. God, would you remind us that in Christ we are loved, in Christ we are accepted, in Christ we are valued, in Christ we are forgiven, in Christ there is joy, in Christ there is life right now. Would you set us free? And for those who have never known you, who are still running and living their life according to the patterns and the philosophies and the values of this world, Holy Spirit, would you be poured out even now and open their eyes to see the beauty of your love in Christ, your atoning work on the cross for our sins, your resurrection, and would you help us through this message that feels crazy to our culture, would you actually bring transformation and change into our lives and then through our lives to the city you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're gonna take time and celebrate communion, so I invite the communion servers to make their way forward. It's, it's wild if you think about it, that at the center of the gathering of the people of God, around the world and throughout history, we have this sacrament, this like image, this meal that portrays a broken body and shed blood. That what we gather to celebrate is a king who would come into this world whose body would be broken for us and whose blood would be shed for us. That his self-emptying, self-sacrificial, atoning love would be the centerpiece of our faith as a community. And so communion is for all those who put their trust in Jesus and say, I need a savior. Well, that's the first time you've ever felt that, or you're just, this is now the life you live, that I need a Savior, and I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you aren't there yet, we're glad you're here. We want this to be a place where you can engage with the claims of Christianity and process that. Our hope for you is that you would believe. We, we do believe, and Jesus taught that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through, except through Jesus that he is the one who can give life and give joy to the full, and our hope is that you would believe. But we also understand there are questions and things you might have to work through, so we'd love to support you in any way as you're, as you're processing those things. Uh, this meal is for all those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus, so I want to invite you to stand together with me. We're going to read this prayer together, and then we'll celebrate communion. Would you read this with me? Lord, as we come to your table... We acknowledge that without you, we are a mess. Thank you for inviting us as we are and for your faithful love toward us. Open our eyes to the ways that we have been shaped more by our culture than by Christ. Forgive us and free us through the power of your crucifixion and transform us by your spirit through the power of your resurrection that we might be united as your holy people to reflect your love and glory to the world. For all those in Christ, come, eat, drink, and remember God's incredible sacrificial love displayed on the cross. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.